gentlemen welcome back to another episode of the midwest monsters podcast i'm one of your hosts grizzly abner and i'm joined by professor wagstaff venomous Vinny. hot toddy good to be with you again friends as we take another dive into the dark shadows of true crime and today's uh subject is a little different um popular film but uh less popular case because it took place in russia we are talking about a monster by the name of andre chikatilo and the movie that HBO Films did called Citizen X. What's everybody? Uh, what's everybody's background with this story, the true crime story, and uh, if you had seen the film or not? I've seen the film numerous times. This is one my my dad had caught on to years ago, and I always thought it was really underrated. And a lot of times, those HBO films didn't get distributed well, yeah, uh, especially long term. So I think it's kind of underseen, um, but I was very unfamiliar with digging into the facts of the case. I think mainly because the subject matter was so grim mm-hmm. that I just kind of stayed ignorant on it. So it was kind of interesting in this this case to dig more into the actual case and already know the film pretty well. Yeah, good. I had never heard of this case until we did it for the podcast. All right. I have never heard of the case, and I'm not familiar with the movie before this either. That's surprising. Cool. Um, For me, I remember I never watched it, but this was on one of our... If you grew up in a bootlegging household, you always had three movies on every VHS tape because (laughs) that's what you could fit on them. Yep. This was on one of those, but I never watched it because I think my dad was like, you shouldn't watch that. (laughs) Well, yeah. Anytime you see X on a VHS tape, you're like, do what? (laughs) (laughs) But uh, yeah, my dad was like, you probably shouldn't watch that one. And, um, no, but I knew about the guy for a while, probably because I saw the VHS tape. And then when I got into true crime, I started associating the name with the, the title of the movie. Um, but he's in all the killer books. Like, yeah. um, one of my favorite books that I have is called the evil 100 where they attempt to rank the top 100 evil people in history. And that's everything from Hitler to Andre Ciccatillo. Like it's, it's just, Trump. well, not yet. He'll be in the revised <laughs> version. Um, but, uh, yeah, so he was in there, and that's where I first really started to read about him, and then he popped up in some of my other, like, evil history books and, and yeah. stuff like that. First time watching the film, uh, one thing that really struck me about the film is the way it reminded me of a little series HBO just did called Chernobyl, and we'll talk about that as we get into the movie. Oh, it's so good. I want to see it. I just can't afford HBO like you. Ah, well, I thought I was the cheapskate in the crowd. <laughs> He's using a borrowed password. <laughs> I am, but it's lost. It's gone now. So I'm, I'm in dire straits. <laughs> so listeners, if you've got an HBO password, holla at your boy. All right, I'm going to pass it back over to Professor. So with this case, even people who aren't familiar with the specifics of it, you may be familiar with the picture. Uh, spoiler alert, he was caught. That's why we're covering him. Um, and Thank there's God. very famous images of him in the courtroom where they kept him within a cage. 
during the trial. And so to some of you who haven't dug into the case before, you may instantly know what I'm talking about. Uh, Andrei Chikatilo was also known as the Butcher of Rostov, the Red Ripper, the Rostov Ripper. And uh, he was believed to have murdered over 50 women and children in Russia and Ukraine between 1978 and 1990. Uh, we'll dig into some interesting reasons why uh, that reign of carnage went on for so long. Uh, oh, some, yeah. Some varying uh, unique situations and uh, resources and police departments that were just behind the times because it was Russia. And that's what makes the story interesting to me. Sure. Yeah. Um, I'm also glad that uh, he just accepted his nicknames, and unlike David Berkowitz, he didn't he didn't write in with better nicknames right. for himself. He wasn't trying to PR his uh, <laughs> yes. reputation. Yeah. Um, so, just heads up to I'm not going in to go into a lot of specific names because I'm not going to sit here and mispronounce Russian and Ukraine names for the next hour. Fair. Um, so. Chikatilo, Andrei Chikatilo was born October 16th, 1936 in a small Ukrainian village during a uh, famine caused by Stalin's forced collectivization of agriculture. Um, unfortunately, when that was going on, Ukraine got snubbed. Oh, they had yeah. to contribute, but they didn't get anywhere near back what was fair. And this so, all which, what all you libtard socialists want <laughs> for our country. <laughs> and so... Man, you caught me off guard. Um, <laughs> and so with that, you had basically another form of a Holocaust going on. Yeah. Um, the number of people killed by Stalin is insane. Oh, it's, it's paltry. Not I mean, remembered I mean, in the way that Hitler is. Right. Uh, just because of the easy way to put your finger on the pulse. But Stalin was a monster. And a oh, lot of people okay. died because of his policies. I mean, they and estimate that. 55 million yeah. of his own people. It's insane. Uh, they were forced, to, in an effort to stave off hunger, they would frequently eat grass and leaves. Uh, they lived in a one-room hut without wages, and the payment they got for the agriculture uh, that they provided into the collectivization was they got a plot of land that, that was theirs where they could grow their own food. It, I mean, it wasn't enough. That's why they were eating leaves and grass. Uh, so it was a pretty horrendous start for him. Um, not to mention the Nazis eventually occupied this area. Mm -hmm. And so he witnessed a lot of atrocities at a young age. Um, as a teen, he grew into being a model student. Do you have the story about his brother? Oh, uh, no. Urban legend has it that his parents oh, used to threaten yeah. him by telling him uh, that the neighbors stole his brother and ate him during the... Uh, the hunger, you know, during all that poverty. And so they would threaten him, like, if you're bad, the neighbors might steal and eat you too. Yeah. Um, so, and feel free to chime in with any more of those because there's some weird shit. I was going to say real quick that he was born with brain lesions yeah. and uh, he was abused by his mother. Yeah. Uh, dad was much more nurturing. Mom was the, the brutal one. Yep. Um, which the dad actually went off to war, uh, was drafted. And I think he ended up being treated as a traitor and basically yeah. left him home alone yep. with mom, who wasn't the kindest. And I think before you get into him being a teen, because I think he, he kind of physically got okay as a teen, but as a young boy, he had some condition that made his breasts large. And so they all teased him and called him Baba, the big tittied boy. <laughs> Uh, I was his, avoiding that one because I didn't want to say it. His, his, his dad was. <laughs> and, and professor did that because, to me in junior high. <laughs> because back then, they uh, if you came back because he was if you came back as a prisoner of war at, afterwards, 
you were looked at as if you were a traitor. It yeah. wasn't honorable yeah. to be captured that you probably flipped on that's your own point. country. Yeah. And that's why his dad was not viewed in a very good light, even though he came home from war. Um, so as we become a teen, he's a model student and also an ardent communist. Uh, he's very, very into uh, the practices that made his life a living hell leading up to that point. So I guess you know what you know. Um, <laughs> you like what you like. And so also there, from the start of puberty, he suffered from impotence. This is mm-hmm. going to be a contributing factor to all of the blood spilled. Uh, puberty gave me the opposite problem. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody likes a bragger. Put your pants on. During yes. these times, he had different instances where he got into struggles uh, with females hmm. and ejaculated into his pants. Uh, flaccid. Yeah. Just, he could not get an erection. And this would go on uh, not only to fuel his insecurity and then making fun of the baloney in the balcony, a.k.a. his man boobs, <laughs> other things along the way. Uh, we kind of create this very miserable soul. I, sorry, I've got grizzly <laughs> tickled over there. Um, I'm glad you guys didn't I, call uh, me that in high school. <laughs> I used to be in a roller derby and had the same problem when I would fight the women. <laughs> <laughs> Folks, we got to laugh to keep from going crazy on this. So, yeah, from the minute he hits puberty, we've got issues with this. Um, and he continues to be incredibly uncomfortable around women because of it. His security is almost, or, you know, just, he has no confidence in himself. Um, he attempts to make it to college. Doesn't. The testing is competitive. He blamed it on, you know, wrong results or being rigged or he something. He blamed it on the American capitalists. Yeah. Um, but it was actually just because other people tested better, and he didn't make it in initially. Um, he was drafted into the Soviet Army in 1957. Um, after that service, he did return back to uh, his the same village he had been from with his parents. Um, and unfortunately, while there, impotence became gossip in the village. It's always a bummer when yeah. everyone knows that you can't. Uh, you got big titties and a limp dick. <laughs> yeah, you can't get going. Um, so, uh, as you would expect, he's pretty unhappy and flees uh, from the village that he knew and had grown up in and finds a job in a town above Rostov. Uh, he gets married eventually in 1963, which is basically arranged by his sister, uh, more than anything out of pity. She wanted him to meet somebody. Um, he would go on to kind of even out a little bit, uh, eventually obtaining a degree in 1970 and becoming a teacher of Russian language and literature uh, and reportedly was a pushover. The kids just walked all over him in the classroom with a lack of discipline. Uh, Do we have anything to add to kind of the early development of... Uh, uh, He had children with his wife, Mm -hmm. which I guess was not through normal means. It was more of a masturbatory thing. Mm -hmm. And almost a sort of artificial insemination. It was not your typical uh, mating, if you will. Yeah. Which I think most of the women up to that point had just laughed at him when he tried to perform. And I think she didn't. It was more just an embracing initially and said, well, well sound good. Threw him a petty fuck. Got married. (laughs) Uh, Are you going to talk about what he did as a teacher? Yes. Okay. I was going to say the first sexual assault was in May of 1973, a 15-year-old female pupil. Um, this would 
occur more times. There would be repeated incidents. Um, and something interesting there, which I actually learned this from last podcast on the left, where they talked about how it wasn't reported because it came down on the school and it came down on the community and things were treated as much more even communal with punishment. In Soviet Russia, we no have child molester. Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. We'll move into a different place. And so this becomes important because these things aren't going on the record other than just kind of word of mouth. Yeah. And so we're not developing something that's easily trackable with him. Um, with that, he is forced to resign. He bounces around to different schools. Uh, that career would eventually end in March of 1981 uh, after more accusations um, where he would then move into uh, factory work, uh, but not in the traditional sense. He would end up traveling for that work, which is also a huge factor in uh, the freedom that we give him as we go kind of into the unfortunate elevation of Mr. Chickatillo's <laughs> say, Are you legacy. trying to tell me that there are some serial killers who benefit from traveling? Yeah. So with this, um, there are a lot of victims over the years. Yeah. We are not going to go through all of those. It, we would take hours. Yeah. There's over 50. Um, in September of 1978, he kills a nine-year-old girl, um, chokes and stabs her. Uh, a side note to that, the wrong man was convicted of this and executed. Oh, yeah. Um, this would be a theme that comes up over and over again is that um, when this happens, they just arrest a village idiot or a village foreigner or somebody from the mental hospital and kill them and say, case closed. Yeah. Um, and just to get this out of the way, because it's really unpleasant and we're not going to go through each crime. Uh, but something very common for him um, was he would he would stab and slash these victims, uh, eviscerate them, just rip them apart. Um, and on top of that, he would bite off their tongues, uh, genitalia. He would bite off their nipples and swallow them. Um, he tr truly is just horrendous. Mm -hmm. um, and I think... Not only is it because this took place over in another part of the world that we don't know about it. I think it's too much. Yeah. Um, and so that's why I'm not too concerned with going into great detail about this stuff. But I do want to clarify kind of what we're dealing with here. Yeah. Um, so early on, we're not consistent. Um, with serial killers, a lot of times you'll have heating up and cooling off periods. His was more just kind of building up. Yeah. Um, and so, as I mentioned, in September of 78, we killed the nine-year-old girl. Uh, September 3rd of 1981, he will kill a 17-year-old girl. And um, June of the following year, a 13-year-old girl. And then the urges take over. Uh, right after that, between July and September, he kills five more people. He has now, at this point, developed his pattern of approaching children, vagrants, uh, prostitutes, runaways, uh, people that won't be missed. And he's meeting them at bus stations, train stations, uh, kind of people on the move. And he's enticing them away with um, different topics. Just take yeah. your pick. He kind of reads the person. So he's very grandfatherly. Yeah. Very, so yeah. he would take them off to nearby um, wooded areas and basically do his deed, clean up, be back on whatever public transportation he was using. And he'd come out and he'd be covered in mud or blood and, and like cops would see him and they'd be like, what are you doing? He's like, I dropped my pencil. And they're like, okay, yeah. I hope you got it. 
Um, another one that another thing that he would typically do that is uh, pretty bad. He would mutilate the eyes, mm-hmm. and he did this because things grew so desperate there in Russia that citizens believed. And this dates back, I don't know if we mentioned it on the Jack the Ripper episode, but the reason there's pictures of Mary Kelly is because they thought they might be able to see the killer in her eyes. Mm. And so that's initially why they were doing that. This is what citizens in Russia were made to believe, that the eye takes a snapshot of the last thing it sees. Yeah, they, there would be an image burned into the eye of the sure. last thing it looked at. And this is because they had watched the Will Smith movie, Wild Wild West, mm-hmm. where Dr. West has that contraption where... He can project through the victim's eyes. I don't know how to return. Um, so he would frequently frequently mutilate the eyes of his victims, making the crime scenes um, just even more upsetting. And and have, we haven't really said either, but there was also a sexual nature to these kills as well. Sure. So uh, on top of everything heinous about him, there's this as well. Yeah, and this this goes back to him realizing that he could have his release, his orgasm, from struggle yep. um, and, and blood. blood. And so <clears throat> another example on December 11th, 1982, he murdered a 10 year old girl, Olga, uh, by stabbing her in excess of 50 times. He then ripped open her chest and excised her lower bowels and uterus. Um, this is not just somebody strangling. No, um, it's brutal. So as at this point, obviously the the body count is piling up. Uh, they're they're just horrendous crime scenes that the public is slowly becoming more and more aware of, uh, but not in the way that we they would be in America. This, I mean, the first one would have been national news, whereas most citizens, unless they're in the village where it happened, probably don't know about it. Uh, but that starts to connect together a little bit. Uh, the investigations ramp up, and many are believing as we discussed on someone else's podcast earlier today, that this is the work of a satanic cult or organ harvesters. Um, And they really were just unequipped to investigate this, Uh, completely overwhelmed. Um, Russia was in many ways decades behind on where they should be for the police work. Um, And they didn't have a fraction of the resources that we do uh, for this work. Um, on September 13th, 1984, Chigatillo was observed by, an under, by undercover cops trying to pick up strangers. Uh, he was followed, stopped, and searched. He had an 8-inch knife, rope, and a jar of Vaseline, and was immediately arrested. Um, while he was being held, his past was uncovered. And here is where we get, at least to me, maybe you guys don't feel as strongly about it, but to me this is the mind-blowing <laughs> moment of this whole story, is... He had different blood and semen types. Yeah. Um, and so... It's like a one in a million thing. Yeah, he literally... They have the guy in front of him. He he has the tools. He fits the MO. Everything. And it doesn't match. They've got evidence from the crime scenes. Doesn't match him. I've heard that there's some debate on whether or not that just wasn't a botched test. Well, he truly does have different ones. Does, so they did substantiate that. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Russia has went back and forth on that. I think more out of saving face. I think even in the movie at the end, they said, say they that mentioned they, that like a female scientist. Yeah. Like is like this is factual, and they're like, it's a woman. 
Yes. She doesn't know. <laughs> he had a blood saliva type of A and semen of AB. So that is How true do you test your semen type? Wait, it's it's a taste for, test. Asking for a friend. <laughs> okay, moving on. Um, so he was removed or released from that just because it didn't match up. They, they couldn't keep him any longer. But he did end up serving three months for theft at his job. Um, during that time, obviously, he didn't kill anybody. And after jail, he took a break. Maybe he didn't want to go back to jail. Not sure. Uh, but there was a stretch, um, I, maybe six months. Maybe not even that long. I don't know. I don't have it jotted down. But he he did take a pause, but he returned, and he returned in a major way. Uh, and this will be the final stretch for, for his atrocities. Um, he got back on the same path, but at this point, he begins killing more and more frequently, and he also is starting to not pay attention to who he's killing. He's killing people that will be missed. Um, he's pulling a Gacy. He's pulling a Bundy. Like yeah. he's, he's just going in berserker mode. Yeah. And uh, public pressure is growing <laughs> at this point, as, as well as the investigation and resources being thrown at it. And on November 6, 1990, Chikatilo murders and mutilates a 22-year-old woman, Svetlana Korostik. We'll go with it. I think that's it. Yeah, close when exiting mur the murder site, he is seen washing at a well. Um, frequently in that time, they would think that somebody's mushroom hunting, but he was dressed in business clothes, and so it immediately got people's attention. Uh, the observing officer took his name and filed it. There was nothing he could charge him for. I don't think there was anything distinctly pinpoint pinpointable on him. Um, I, but I do think he came out with blood smeared on his face. Usually that'll get your attention, but nonetheless... The observing officer in the area, because they had people at every station just watching. Mm -hmm. And so he comes sauntering out of the woods here. Officer takes the name, and they file it. At this point, like, to put it in perspective, we had caught Richard Ramirez years before when this date is with a public fingerprint database system running it through the computer. I think that was the first time anywhere in America we did that, that someone was caught that way. They're using filing cards. I mean, that's where we're at. They're holding them up to the light. Right. Like, that looks like his fingerprint. taking cards with reports. And so this was put in that area. Well, when the body was discovered, which I think maybe was a week later in that, that, that he had been coming out from, that officer remembered, pulled the card, and they got with the investigators that had been on this, which we'll cover more in the movie. Um <clears throat> but they recognized the name. They'd had him before with the, the different blood and semen type. And so it all is brought together there. They have six days of surveillance uh, with that, and they did a great job in the movie, which we'll talk about, but four plainclothes officers arrest him leaving a coffee shop after he's trying to pick up a girl there. During open mic night. Yeah. Um, Poetry sign. <laughs> And so we, we get down to the bottom of the DNA testing and the semen testing. This time they test semen from a sample, um, and they've got their answers. They then bring in a psychologist, which was radical at the time for them. Yeah. Um, and they it's basically... also tubular. And radical. <laughs> and, um, oh, man. Whew. So they bring in the psychologist, and he reads his profile. With Chikatilo. There, yeah. There's no trying to grill him. There's no good cop, bad cop. He just reads his profile yeah. in depth, and it levels Chikatilo. Two hours in, 
he bursts into tears and confesses to everything. Um, on April 14th, 1992, the trial begins. It is a circus, as I mentioned at the top of the episode. They've got him in a cage to protect him. Now that's that's the key, yeah. to protect him yeah. from the families that are there oh, yeah. at the trial. And just citizens in general. Yeah. They knew what he'd done. Yeah. <clears throat> and on October 15th, he is sentenced to death. And in Russia, they do things swiftly. Um, so February 14th, having Valentine's Day, 1994, they usher him out of his cell into a soundproof room and put one right behind his ear. Um, which was more which more kind than anything he ever did to his victims. Yeah. Um, he is in an unmarked grave at the present cemetery. And that is the story of the, the Rostov Ripper, wow. Andre Chikatilo. So I believed you early on said that you claimed over 50 victims, but I, w- I would just note that uh, most of them were under the age of 17. Yep. 35 of them were under and, the age uh, of 17. So, so just to recap, what was the f- his first murder to where he was caught? What year was the first murder? His first murder was in 1978. And they caught him? 1990. That's... Uh, also, at How many his trial, did they arrest though in between then? Mm-hmm. Uh, did you see the footage of the trial photos where he like whips his dick out like oh, yeah. uh, oh my god I'm just off the rails he was try- is, he was trying to get an insanity plea wasn't yeah, he that's yeah. what, that's what it was yeah. um, which is kind of ironic because he'd spent a life of insecurity over his pecker yeah and now he's got a room full of people looking at him dancing with him like, put that left dick away yeah. <laughs> ain't getting hard <laughs> man what. A you want the flaccid acid? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, let's 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 uh, get Merry into Christmas. the movie. <laughs> yeah, Good times. it's a hard uh, candy Christmas. So, the film Citizen X, uh, nineteen ninety five, directed by Chris Geronimo. Geronimo. Uh, I'm gonna say it's uh, Geronimo. Based on the book by Robert Collin and starring uh, Stephen Ray, Donald Sutherland. Max Bonsito and Jeffrey Damon as Andre Chikatilo. And I, I should have noted, but I can't think of the one um, commander or whatever uh, name that's in a ton of movies. That, Diplomatic uh, immunity. Yes, yes. <laughs> lethal weapon. Uh, that pretty much uh, shit-hilled quite a, a bit of the investigation. Yeah. So... <sighs> I think this is a really good movie. It's fantastic. Yeah, it's strange because uh, so it's it's uh, HBO Films. I don't remember. Like I said, I, I worked in the video store and everything. I don't remember this coming out on video. I don't remember it being talked about uh, as an HBO movie. Um, I really wasn't familiar at all until till this. And uh, I, I'm looking into it. I haven't watched it yet, but the movie Child Forty Four. I think say. It's the same case. There's been a couple more, yeah. Only hmm. they, uh, I think, is Child 44 Bruce Willis? I don't think they, I don't think they use, like, all the names and stuff, but it's the, it's the case. Uh, Interesting. I haven't watched it yet. I was, like, uh, definitely in the dark on this guy, so. Well, that's awesome, though. I'm glad this could be a first-time watch. For it people. was for me as well. Uh, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it from a uh, police drama point of view. Uh, now I don't have enough knowledge to know how accurate it is, but I was uh, kind of intrigued with some of the things showing how communism worked during that time in the Soviet Union, like them applying for a two-bedroom 
house to live in and and the inadequacies of of their police work due to funding and just technology. Uh, The only thing out of this movie that I will give as a a detriment to it is the accents are... Yeah, Donald Sutherland is like listening to Holly Berry when she was Storm. In the X-Men movies, do her uh, African accent about half the time when delivering lines. Other than that, I thought the movie was real. It had me, like I said earlier, I have maybe two notes in my notebook for this. and a lot, That's usually an indicator of how into a movie I am mm. if I forget to take notes on it. Uh, I, uh, again, not knowing, not knowing the case or anything, it starts up, um, and it's, uh, I don't mean this in a... It's like in another country, and it's like a, a period and time that I'm not familiar with. And I'm like, all right, well, this is going to be fun. And, then, and it sucks me in again, like the the just like the middle part of the movie where they're just uh, busting up because because even if they didn't do it, they're gay people, so who the fuck cares? Yeah. Um, not only that, but the one guy is actually like basically kind of doing it to find uh, people we can exploit, uh, so he can get sexual favors from uh, behind his wife's back. Uh, we all have friends like that, but uh, <laughs> I don't know. Definitely, uh, definitely surprising. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I kept trying to think. <laughs> the only thing that bothered me was the uh, the actor playing him. I kept like, who is this guy? And I realized he's from Christmas Evil. So the guy playing um, Chicatello. He's for yeah, you know him from a bunch of You know him from the Green Mile, you also know I know him, him from as, a ton of stuff, but I just kept thinking You know him as Dale from The Walking Dead. But but I just kept thinking, I just watched him in something. Yeah. And I'm like, Christmas Evil. So <laughs> Yeah, the brother. Yeah, he's he's a really good actor. Um the the characters are exactly who they were in real life that mm-hmm. they're playing. This is the true story of the detectives and you know, their superiors. Yeah. Um I don't understand how Stephen Ray didn't win an award for this. I thought he's he's remarkable. See the coroner? No, he's the main detective. Yeah. Or yeah, slash, yeah, 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 yeah. Coroner. Yeah, yeah. Um, Brokoff. I um, mean, and if I can expand upon that just briefly, I mean that opening scene where um, oh, where they bring in all the bodies, where they bring in all the bodies, and he's crying during the autopsy. Mm-hmm. That sucked me in right away. I was like, this is like. That, uh, really portraying the toll that it's taking on him was it right shortly from the beginning after there's there's a scene where he cries in front of the committee and the guy's like is he crying like he's uh, like upset that this grown man is crying who's seen all the victims like yeah. he's the one having to deal with it so um, is a good role standing up for him too yep him coming back in and saying for the first time in so many years he's going to take a vacation um, but he ushers him out of there and kind of stands up for him. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the performances were good. Demun is such a good actor in anything that he's in, and this is no exception here. I think the most important thing about this movie is that they chose to keep it brief with the carnage. Yep. Um, if they would have exploited any of that in any way, it would have been abhorrent. You, you... And the... <laughs> I really like that the focus is so much on the detective work because we have some of that in American cases and our movies. Um, 
But in this instance, you have so much more of the deck stacked against him than you do even with an American detective. And don't get me wrong, they're put through hell too with this stuff. Yeah. But I think that it's he really puts forth an insane performance, one that you truly suffer with him. Yeah. And that's what makes the movie so special. And this thing is top shelf in every direction. It's got a legit haunting score to it. I mean, if this hadn't been an HBO film, I think this would have been in, you know, the Oscars. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's that good. It's one of the better movies we'll ever cover for anything related to true crime. Yeah. In my opinion. Can you imagine spending that many years of your life chasing the whale like, like yeah. he did and and, and the seeing the this, consequences every time you haven't gotten him yet the, the scene, to look at that the scene where he uh dreams that it's his daughter and he wakes up and the next thing he's in the room uh with his son and daughter uh what the i will say i think it's one of the older victims that it's more explicit with and i'm glad they did that because i was already so disturbed by what was going on in the film that if he if they would have done explicitness with a child so right. It was already disturbing the things he was doing, um, but it was one of the scenes where it's an older actress, so, um, and he just stabs her. He just keeps stabbing her. Um, had that been a kid, I, I don't think I could have handled it. Yeah, occasionally um, some of those victims were prostitutes who would laugh mm-hmm. when he. I think that's the one he, he uh, and mutilates, he, and he would go extra berserk. Yeah, on those instances, because I think she's laughing that he basically is impotent, and um, I think that's maybe the scene I'm thinking of, but. Had they done that, to, it was. Yeah. All, I was already disturbed every time he was talking to a child in the train station. Yep, it's it's a rough watch, but an excellent one. I'm then, glad we uh, covered it. The the it seemed a little tedious at the beginning, but where it kept showing the family members talking about their their because they were showing them pictures of the children. Um, that was kind of hard to watch, but then like uh, I think that's when they started piecing together that they would always say, "Well, they rode the train." They rode the train. They were simple. They were slow. They, you know, like, yeah. Yeah. I think what this film does a great job of is what HBO would do a great job of later with Chernobyl. Have any of you watched Chernobyl? I want to. Okay. So um, Chernobyl's phenomenal. And what they do a great job is just showing how the Soviet Union's ineptitude costs them their republic. And this is, this is no exception. So, to those of you listening at home. So he comes in and he talks about these killers and, you know, he says, this is, uh, these victims indicate that it's been done by one person. And basically it's, it's over dramatized. It's kind of hokey, but he's, you know, this, this asshole, you know, leader guy says there are no serial killers in Soviet Russia. And what they ultimately did was, in the implementation of communism in Russia, they were unwilling to not unwilling to admit any fault because they constantly had to prove to the West that communism was superior. Mm-hmm. And so they couldn't admit that this guy could have been a serial killer because that's just not going to happen in a communist society because we are, we are above that. We are evolved beyond that. So that won't happen. And so, Every time he has these conversations, he's in a room with a general, uh, someone from Moscow, someone who represents the Communist Party, so that he is towing the line for their agenda. And there's the one point where he says, I need this many men to work on the case. I need to talk to the FBI in America, and I need 
uh, we need to advertise this. We need computers as well. And we need computers. And they were like, you're dumb. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You're not getting that. They essentially hand the case over to some Some guy from, yeah, from, from, Moscow. This guy comes in from Moscow and says, "Well, we're just going to arrest all the drifters and homosexuals." Well, I'm and they glad did you it. mentioned all that too, because that's also why citizens didn't know about it. it exactly, wasn't just that they don't have the same media as us or anything like that. It's that it was being kept quiet. Yeah. yeah, and so Sutherland does a great job of saying, "Listen, this is why they denied all that. If you got all the people in manpower, it would it would show that we weren't doing our job very well. If you." Uh, advertised, it would show that there's weakness in the, uh, our police system. If you called America, that would admit to the West that we are not as good at, as them in investigating these things. And so it was all about not giving the Soviet Union a bad look. And that's exactly why Chernobyl turned out the way it did. They blew the reactor because they thought they were smart enough to run a reactor at a higher core heat level than you were scientifically able to, but because they were the Soviet Union, they're like, that's bullshit. We can do that. And then everything after that was a domino falling about how... So they were like fake news. Yep, everything. I was just going to say, do you feel like there's some parallels right now? <laughs> um, not as dire <laughs> levels, but hard-headedness. Yes, it was all hard-headedness. And so that's what happened in the Soviet Union with Citizen X. That's what happens with Chernobyl, is that the, every at every point where they had some point that they could have taken an opportunity to clean this mess up, it would they would have to admit that they did something wrong, and they were fucking unwavering and unwilling to do it. Yeah. And so this movie does a great job of showing that on a micro level, whereas Chernobyl shows it on a macro level. You know, was it, uh, I'm not sure if you know or not, but was it, was it true about him being, um, a member of like the, the Soviet party? Yes. He was a member in good standing. Why would you, why would you arrest this man? Yeah. Yeah. He's a member of the communist party in good standing. You can't arrest him. Let him go right now. Hey buddy. He's got an eight inch knife and a tub of Vaseline. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So that's, that's one thing that I really think stood out for me in the movie. Um, they, they did a really good job of depicting him picking up the people the bus stop, mm-hmm. the train station. Yeah, very haunting. They did a good job portraying his relationship with his wife. They did a good job, um, you know, showing how they were arresting uh, homosexuals and how they were arresting, uh, you know, I the local gypsies. Was, again, yeah. I, I don't know. I'm not <clears throat> as up on the case, but uh, where he made a point that every train station, not only was there to be guards, but they, if, if there was a stranger talking to somebody, they were to go up and make it not be secretive about it. And then they did this all but th- like three stations where they had undercover uh, officers. So I don't know if that part was true or not either, but I don't know. Yeah. yeah. And, and there was areas also that would heat up where he'd done them recently. He'd just move on down the line mm-hmm. and heat it up there and then bounce around to the next. He had all this ground to cover. And I think I forgot to mention it. The other thing is when at the final push, they cross-referenced all of his work records for travel and were able to pinpoint him. Mm. At all of the locations. I left that out. But that's another way that they nailed that down along with retesting him for semen in the second go around. But they were able to to put him at the the spot of basically every train station through that. The other scene, too, that I think of is uh, where Donald Sutherland's telling him that he speaks to the, like, American FBI agent. Oh, man. And that in America, it's a big thing uh, for psychological purposes you don't have the same person working the case for only a certain amount of time. Like 18 months you rotate yeah. off. 
something like yeah, that. Yeah, and then this guy is yeah. <laughs> no, that's I'm I'm really glad you brought that up, Todd, because that was another very uh, emotionally striking moment of the film when he like just can't believe that the fucking FBI thinks he's a hero for the work that he's done. And he feels like, an oh, utter, yeah, that's a great, scene. he feels like an utter failure. The communist party is treating him like an utter failure. Everyone just thinks he's an idiot. And like, no, I'm Quanta- a little goosebumps thinking about yeah, it. Some of the best that. detective work in modern history. Yeah. yeah. Quantico, Virginia is like, no, sir, you, we talk about you in our classes. He said he'd, hate, he'd hate to be being followed by you. Yeah. And, uh, and of course, the sissy starts crying again. Yeah. <laughs> you never see him because you got tears in your eyes, you big baby. I also love the scene when they bring him out and silence the public and somebody makes it clear, this is who caught him. Yeah. And you get the applause. That's such a, a great scene because you yeah. see the faces of all these just weathered, exhausted, scared, heartbroken people. Yeah. So. And they're all just chewing on grass because there's yeah. nothing else to eat. Still got the famine. Give me that bowl of leaves. Uh, <laughs> Vinny, where did you say you watched this out? Is it on YouTube for listeners? It is on YouTube. It's actually an HD. It's an HD copy I watched, on I watched it on Amazon Prime. There you go. I was oh, going to say, I, I know it's not the easiest film to get. I still have an old snapback DVD of, the, of that. But nice. I wanted to make sure, if because we're selling this pretty hard, that yeah. anybody can yeah, check it out. Yeah, you can watch it yeah, on, it's actually, in HD on YouTube. It's part of Prime, so if you're... Prime member, it's free. Cool. Which yep. uh, usually, when you guys pick out movies, they're not free to me. <laughs> All right. Well, highly, I think that's that's four, eight thumbs way up. Oh yeah, <laughs> recommending, way up. <laughs> recommending Citizen X. Um, yeah, it's it's for me. It's up there with Zodiac and some of these other true crime movies that we've talked about being definitely. so good. It's really strange because I I I'm definitely always uh fascinated with again not not really the killer but like how they called him and the fact that i've never heard of this like i'm baffled by it i think we all share that trait i'm more interested in the detective work and the people that are put through those horrendous scenarios and and get these people away from us off the streets absolutely the real heroes yes yeah right on well, wrapping up another episode of True Crime. We are the Midwest Monsters, and I am Grizzly Abner, joined by Professor Wagstaff, Venomous Vinny, Hot Toddy. Stay scary. <laughs>